Father God, we come to you as needy women. We come to you as those who have been declared righteous before you. Because of your great love for us when we were in rebellion against you, God haters, those running from you, you saved us, not because of anything good in us, but because of your great love, because of your great mercy toward us. And now, Lord, we live as women who have um, your righteousness. You are uh, all that we need and all, um, all that we will ever need. You are sufficient. Lord, we are faithless, and you are always faithful. And God, this morning, I pray that your spirit would come, that you would take these words that you have given to me, and Lord, may you make them powerful, and may you meet the need of each woman's heart this morning. God, it is your kindness that has led us to repentance, and we want to come under your word this morning. We want to submit to you. We want to leave here loving you more, desiring you more, and so, Lord, would you do that in us this morning? Again, thank you for allowing us to be here in this beautiful building um, to rejoice and to make much of you. In Christ's name I pray, amen. So each week we uh, take out our notebooks and then uh, turn them over. It's a lively group for 7 a.m. on Saturday morning. Wow. So take out your notebook, turn it over, and we want to remind one another each week of our purpose at Wellspring. And we want to keep this focus in front of us, um, our aim together, and just see how we're doing each week. Have we stayed true to this purpose? to the aim of our time together. So let's turn it over, and would you read with me our purpose? To equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the Word of God so that they live gospel transformed lives, thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. So why do we come every week? And maybe this is your second or third or fifth or sixth time through Wellspring. Why do you continue to keep coming? And why do the elders encourage us to come? So we want to look back at the purpose. We meet together to encourage one another, to protect these hearts of ours, to realign our hearts, to shepherd our hearts through Christ, through his word, so that it changes us, so that we more fully glorify the Lord by the lives that are changed. This displays Christ in his gospel. We see and battle sin through his word. Uh, we see it more fully, and we are moved to worship. When we preach the gospel to our next day, we spend time in his word, and we're humble and grateful that he has saved rebels to himself. And then we have conversations with those in our home and those in the church, other, maybe you have roommates or parents, and you build one another up, right? And we strengthen the church that way. This is the ministry that we all share. This is why we come, to be equipped and encouraged. This is a vital ministry that each of us have, building up the church, and we do that in our time together. It's our why we are being equipped and encouraged. So now we're gonna look at the disciplines under that purpose of our time together. And these disciplines are taking place as we are separate, as we are in our home throughout the week. So the first one is she prayerfully shepherds her heart toward God through the word of God, and in particular, the gospel. Shepherding my heart is supplying what my heart needs at any given moment. In Psalm 119, we hear of the heart of a man who loves God and loves his word and who is earnest for obedience. Psalm 119.10 says, With all of my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. What he's saying is, God, I have sought you with all of my heart. In my innermost being, with all that I am, I have sought you. I've pursued you and I've searched for you. And what does his pursuit produce? He cries out, Don't let me wander from your commandments. Don't let me forget them. Don't let me stroll away into a life of disregarding or disobeying them. In seeking God wholeheartedly, he sees the danger of wandering from God's word. I see that in my life, too. He sees the value of God's word and his necessity for his own heart to be near to it. Wandering is pretty passive, right? Perhaps we don't have a clear destination, or it's like a following, a child who's goes wherever he wants, wherever, whatever catches his eye, he just wanders this way and he wanders that way. Sometimes, missing a day or two with the Lord leads to a week or two without meeting with the Lord. 
and you find that you are wandering. Or there is always the danger of being in God's word every day, but not engaging with him in there. We can read to check off our list in time in the word or to finish our wellspring lesson, but we leave and we have no idea what we've read or we haven't worshipped the Lord while we've been there. Our minds are wandering the whole time that we are reading. We're going to see in our lesson today that we are vulnerable and we are easily deceived and we need to be near to the Lord. So we, as those who have been born again, those who have been declared righteous before God, we can now be women who seek God with all of our hearts. We can. We, too, must guard our hearts from wandering from the word as the psalmist does, and as a child wanders. We cultivate a love for God by the daily discipline of meeting with him in his word, of seeking him there, to know him, to worship him, to humble ourselves before him, to be laid bare, spiritually speaking, before him. We can't love him if we don't know him, and we know him through his word. In the unregenerate man's state, when we were lost in our sins, we were alienated from God, even hostile toward him. There was no wandering. There was only hostility against him and his word. But God, because of his great love for us, has made us alive together with him. That is an amazing truth. We can know God through his word. It's breathed out for us by him. Shepherding our hearts is seeking God in meaningful interaction with God in his word through prayer. The word of God is his communication to his children. The Bible shows us God. When we talk of shepherding our hearts, it's not a constraint to time for sure. It's supplying what my heart needs at any given moment. It begins in our quiet time, time set apart to be with the Lord for sure. But we must be careful to watch over this heart of mine all throughout the day. We sure don't want to spend time with the Lord in the morning and live life the way we want to, to walk in the flesh the rest of the day, or leave us forgetting to worship the Lord for his many kindnesses throughout our day. Shepherding our hearts is 24-7. It's a responsibility, and it's a privilege because of that the Lord has made possible for us. God's grace in the gospel has made it a reality. We're no longer slaves to our sins, and we are not slaves to aimless wandering. We've already been given victory over this. We move into the home. She shepherd, or I'm sorry, she ministers to those in her household with her heart for God and the gospel. If we're feeding and nourishing our own hearts, realigning our wayward hearts with His truth, learning God's character and growing in our affection for Him, we have much to offer to those in our home and those God brings to us in our home. The words of wisdom will be on our tongue as we soak in the gospel. We'll be ready to encourage others in the good news, applying the gospel to every circumstance that comes our way. <clears throat> I can build up my husband or my children, roommates, parents, to right thinking about God, which leads to worship and greater obedience to his word. But if I'm not intentional about ministering to those in my home in this way, with my heart for God and the gospel, then I can easily wander. I simply don't stop to take time to minister to my family, laying down my agenda, my interests for the interests of others in my home. This caring doesn't just happen. I must draw upon, draw them out with questions and conversation. This allows us together, perhaps, to see what's going on in their hearts and let them help me to see what's going on in mine. Proverbs 14, 1 says, The wise woman builds up her house, but the foolish tears it down with her own hands. To be thoughtful and prayerful about how we live in our lives, our lives in our homes, in those closest relationships, where lives rub up against one another every day, where there are often so many needs and so many opportunities to deny ourselves and to extend grace serve. <clears throat> Ministry and service in our homes, done with a heart for God and the gospel, are opportunity every day, all day long, to display what the gospel has done in us first, right? And there are so many opportunities in our homes without every reason. And that brings us to discipline three, ministry. 
With a heart for God and the gospel, and fulfilling her ministry within her household, she steps into the church to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. We've said it before, these disciplines are all happening simultaneously. As we are faithfully caring for our own hearts and those in our home, God will bring opportunities to encourage women around us. Don't you find yourself drawn to women who you sense are drawing near to the Lord? It's imperative that each of us is that kind of woman. We'll be mutually encouraged with one another, and that's how God designed the body to work. And we must caution one another always not to leapfrog over our own hearts or those in our home. Too often there are those who want to serve in the church and meet with others to disciple them, but their homes are not in order because they're not faithfully shepherding their own hearts or ministering to the needs of those in our home. We must caution being busy doing good things, but not carefully caring for those in our homes. We want to care well so that we display God's glory in our homes. And what a joy it is to be about the work that God has called us to do. And we're not talking about perfection here, are we? It's that our hearts are home, and that we are caring for those there well. Ladies, there are a lot of really, really good things that we can choose to spend time doing, aren't there? But not all are necessary, or not the best choice for us or others that we have in our lives. We will have to look at each opportunity and ask ourselves, and maybe you have your husband's help or a parent or a roommate, is this best for me? It's so easy to fill every moment of every day and be there physically perhaps in our homes, but not be there fully. Does that make sense? We want to be women who don't passively take on more and more while without realizing it or desiring to, we are way too busy or too tired to meet the physical spiritual needs in our homes. And as we live out the one another's in scripture, the whole church is strengthened. And that means we better display the fullness of Christ. So today we're going to move into our lesson. A couple of weeks ago you looked at the what the gospel does for our hearts for our inner man. And we saw that the gospel makes us into new creations. And we look forward to our glorification as believers when we will be in an unmixed condition and be at home with the Lord. But God in his wisdom and his goodness and sovereignty has made a way for us to be born again into new creations, and he has left us in a mixed condition. He certainly could have taken us from the unregenerate man directly into glorification and made us spotless and perfect. But he's chosen to glorify himself through our mixed condition. Do you see that as we are in the process of progressive sanctification, becoming more like Christ, I must be dependent upon him. In my mixed condition, his glory is seen and his power is displayed through my weakness. We often sing, all I have is Christ. And the last uh, verse says, now Lord, I would be yours alone and live so all, that, so all might see the strength to follow your commands could never come from me. Oh, Father, use my ransom life in any way you choose, and let my song forever be. My only host is you. His power is seen in me and in you. And as we and others see that I am weak in myself, I am incapable of anything good. And when you see grace in, what, um, in me and I see grace in you, it causes us to worship him. He is displayed in us. And we ought to be encouraging one another. I see God's grace in you in this. Or I see God's grace in you in this. So in our, gospel, our lesson, Gospel Implications for My Heart, we talked about the hope we have because of all the conversion events and gospel realities. Again, back here. We learned about new abilities and desires. And we saw that it's an ongoing weakness of the new creation. That although the old is gone, nonetheless, we carry a residue of sin and weakness, and that's the mixed condition we talked about, just to review. But now we're in a position of great hope, because we can now fight against the sin that used to master us. A slave doesn't battle her master, she serves her master because he is good. And so the fact that as new creations, we can now participate in that process of sanctification and that we're growing in our desire and ability to battle sin by God's grace 
is evidence that we have a new master, and he is a good, good master. It is then in this, our pursuit to know him, discipline one, that we humbly submit to and obey our master because he's been so gracious to redeem us, to save us for himself. Without him, we had no hope. It is not that I obey because it's the right thing to do or outward conformity, but his love compels me to obey him and to submit. And so today we're going to look at a biblical survey of the heart. We do this because God's word has a lot to say about our heart. Maybe the flesh would like us to believe that we're not so bad. We're pretty savvy about our hearts. We might try to convince ourselves that there's always someone else's heart who's worse off than ours. But we're going to listen together today and study and understand the reality of my own heart before God. By understanding God's evaluation of the heart, we position ourselves to benefit from his word as he designed it to. It's just one of the ways that he cares for us as his children. So there's a story that Scott shares in Bill, and I just, I just love this story because it helps me to understand. There was a four-day-old baby born in a small village in India, rural, remote, and he was battling for his life because he was born with ectopia cordis. His heart was outside of his body. So his father and grandfather rushed him for 24 hours, 800 miles to the capital to see the doctor. Most babies died within just a few hours of this. The biggest challenge for this baby was his own heart. His only hope was for the doctor to get the baby's heart back inside of him. Well, spiritually speaking, our biggest challenge is our own hearts. That baby's biggest challenge wasn't his parents, or his home life, or his environment, or the fact that he would live in poverty for all of his life. It's his own heart. And my greatest challenge is not my parents or my upbringing, wealth or status, but my own heart before the Lord. The baby's only hope was to get that heart inside his body. And he couldn't do it by himself. He was dependent on the doctor. And all men are born in need of a new heart. And they cannot help themselves. We all are dependent on Christ to do that for us. Everyone in the baby's life, of course, was focused on the heart. They weren't concerned about his eye color or weight, anything like that. And we need to be entering into a lifestyle, if we're not already there, where we're constantly concerned with my heart. Not that I become myoptic and focused on myself, but because I understand the true condition of my heart in order to appreciate and be thankful for what Christ did for me at the cross for our sinful hearts. So we're going to do an overview, okay? So we're going to go from Old Testament to New Testament several times. I was going to count, I think, four times, maybe. And so there's a lot of verses this morning. Look up what you can, what you want to. They're all listed there. You can go back and look at them later. However best you uh, want to keep up with me today. We're going to talk about and look at what God wants us to know about the heart. What the heart is. It's qualities, it's what it understands, it's calls, it's need, and we're going to look at all of that so that we are spurred on to embrace and pursue and rely upon that which God has provided for our hearts. So you're going to see in each category there's a number, and within each category we're going to start in the Old Testament and go through the New. And the reason we do that um, is because God has unfolded his revelation to us that way. I pray that you will find this beneficial, so hang on. God revealed to, to Moses exactly what he wanted his people of Israel to have, what they needed to have a saving relationship with him. But we know that he built on that, and he has continued to reveal himself to us through the word. So we want to walk through these subjects the way that God has set it up in his word. We want to let these verses speak for themselves. We want to feel the impact, verse after verse, hearing what God has told us in his word regarding the heart. It's good for us to feel the weight of the wickedness of my heart. 
And I pray that this might be as if you've heard it the first time. Many of us have heard this many, many times. But I pray the impact of God's words to us would be felt again so that we might just more appreciate and grow in our affection and love for him because of what he's done. When we begin, you're going to know that this is our heart before the Lord rescued and gave a new heart, okay? It also serves as a reminder of us, though, of the evil that still remains within us, the presence of sin in our hearts. You see, the power of sin was broken, and the penalty for sin has been paid, but there is a presence of sin that still remains, a residue left behind. So on your outline, question one, what is the heart? When we talk about heart, what do we mean? I think you talked about this some in your lesson last time. The heart is the inner man, the inner person. It's you. It sums up who you are, and we're at least We have the outer man, the physical part, and we have the inner man, the heart. The heart is the place in which God reveals himself to us first and foremost. The heart is the part of us that is addressed by God. It is where we are evaluated by God. The heart is the seed of doubt and hardness, as well as faith and obedience. The heart is the center of our emotions, our thoughts, our will. It's the center of who we are. So every thought, every word, desire, emotion, deed, comes from my heart. And that's our wellspring theme verse, Proverbs 4.23. Guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. We see this in the greatest commandments that there's overlap between the heart and mind, biblically speaking. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind. Now, Jesus isn't dividing us up into four parts and saying, love us with each part. Rather, there's overlap, and they are all describing who we are from the inside out. We often think of the heart as the emotional part of us, and the mind as the cognitive organ but the Bible doesn't support that idea. The decisions and choices that we make in life generate, originate with what we love and what we desire. And it always begins in the heart. There are over 750 references in the Bible of, about the word, about the heart. We're just going to look at a fraction today. In the greatest commandment, God uses heart, soul, strength, and mind to underscore that we are to love him completely all out with everything with the very essence of who we are and that is going to overflow into everything that we do it is the heart that loves God who prays to God who rejoices in God who turns to him who seeks him who trusts God who yields to God what does God want from us he wants wholehearted devotion to himself God does this work first on the inner man and that affects the whole man Oftentimes, we are tempted to work maybe on the outer man until we understand this, relying on our own strength. And it's simply moralism, looking good on the outside, but having no lasting effect because the heart has not been changed. Man is naturally content with the outward part of religion, with outward morality, outward correctness, but the eyes of the Lord look much further. He regards the motives. He weighs the spirits, says in Proverbs 16, he says himself in Jeremiah 17, 10, I, the Lord, am the searcher of the heart, the tester of the thoughts. Well, let's say I have an apple tree in my backyard, and I've had it for years, but every year when they mature, the apples are dry and wrinkled and brown, and they're pulpy. Well, after several years, I think this is silly to have an apple tree that you can't eat the apples. So I'm going to fix this tree, and I carry in a huge bushel of red, delicious apples, and I begin stapling them on the tree branches, right? <laughs> you watch carefully thinking, I've gone cuckoo. Um, but I fixed my tree. I'm quite certain of it. Well, it's a good example, right? Because we all know that soon those apples are going to be just like the ones that were there. Of what we attempt to do with our own hearts and sometimes the heart of our children. We focus on behavior and we lose sight of the heart behind the behavior. We try to fix the apples of our appearance and behavior instead of addressing the serious problem of the heart. So when we say heart, we're talking about you, right? Not just a part of you, but who you are at the very core. <coughs> the apple, 
<laughs> who you are in totality. So therefore, the heart is the focal point of God's evaluation of us. The heart is the focal point of God's evaluation of us. Go on to question two. What does scripture say about the human heart? At this point, we're going to speak generally of the condition of the heart, apart from new life in Christ. And that's represented by the far on the left here. This will be true until we get to question six, part two, so a ways, so keep that in mind as we're going to study. But you will see in some verses that in the mixed condition we find ourselves, there's a residue. You and I will recognize our hearts in some words that we look at. So the overall thrust here is to show us our need for Christ, and it ought to spur us on in the ongoing need for the gospel and his word. Let's look at Genesis 6-5. We're going to start there. The word gives us the description of the human heart by what, by explanation of what comes next. God gives the account of Noah's ark and God's plan to destroy the earth with a flood. In verse 5, we see, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. God is saying that every intent of the thoughts of his heart, any intention, any plan, purpose of the heart, nothing that doesn't have evil saturating it. There's good news coming, though. Nothing that doesn't have wickedness. Do you see that every only and continually all in one sentence there man's great wickedness is primarily a heart problem so the flood comes in chapter 6 and 7 and it subsides in chapter 8 and so they come off the boat and looking at verse 20 and 21 then Noah built an altar to the Lord what does he do when he comes off he begins to worship the Lord and he took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. What? Here we are during the moment of worship. God is stating again what is still true of the human race. A repeat of what he said in chapter 6 before the flood that every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually there are only eight people now on the face of the earth and he's saying as you worship me as you come off that boat there's still a problem man's heart is evil the point is the judgment of the flood did not fix man's problem but God had a plan listen to Proverbs 20 verse 9 who can say, I have cleansed my heart, I am pure from my sin? No one, right? It's a rhetorical question. The stain of man's heart is so great, we don't possess what it takes to cleanse it, to purify it. And so, we've already seen that the heart is evil, and that it's beyond our ability to cleanse it. Let's turn to Matthew 15, which is the New Testament. Mm. We're not going to read all of it, but um, Matthew 15, 1 through 20. Well, the Pharisees and the scribes are very concerned about hand washing, which is an outer man concern. And in verse 7 and 8, Jesus responds and said, Here's the problem. You honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. They're not concerned about their hearts, are they? In verse 15, then, Peter says, Explain the parable to us. And in verse 16, Jesus said, Are you still lacking in understanding? Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. Jesus is telling us there's a source of defilement, of corruption inside of us. The heart is the source that defiles us, that makes us impure. Let's turn to Romans 121, just a little further there. 
Again, we're moving through the Bible looking for what God has said about the condition of the human heart. And it says in Romans 1.21, For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculation, and their foolish heart was broken. What is the proof of man's foolishness? It's this, that even though they knew something about God, they had no intent at all to honor him as God at a heart level. And that's foolish. And a foolish heart plunges a person into spiritual darkness. So we've just looked at five passages so far. And this is, good, this is the sum. Man's heart is evil. The heart is beyond our ability to cleanse it. It's the source of defilement within a person in his own heart. The foolish heart invites greater spiritual darkness. That's what God says about our hearts. So when the world says, just follow your heart, is that wise counsel? <laughs> Absolutely not. That heart is not worth following. Um, phone calls, I'm checking the time. <laughs> contrary 
to the teaching which you learned and turned away from them. Why? He says in verse 18, For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Jesus, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. If we are unsuspecting people in the church, and there are troublemakers causing divisions and creating obstacles in their church, which we are naive to, our hearts can be deceived by them. We can be led astray. Let me read James 1.26 to finish out this section. There's one more aspect here. If anyone thinks that he is religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. If I think I'm religious but I don't have control over my own words, what comes out of my mouth, it's evidence that my heart has been deceived. I'm self-deceived. So is the heart alert to its seven-state condition? And the answer is no, not apart from Christ. Well, how can it be alert to its own devastation when it's surrounded by and vulnerable to and filled with deception? It's leading itself astray. And we've seen the warnings to believers as well. There's an ongoing residue of deceivability, even in, a, is in us as new creations. Okay, one more. Question four. What is the highest call of the human heart? We're going to go to Matthew 22 because it's a repeat of Deuteronomy 6. And we're not going to read that again, but it'll be very familiar as we turn to Matthew 22. He's repeating that to his disciples in Matthew 22, 36 through 38. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? What's the highest calling a good thing a good Jew like me should be about? And Jesus answers. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. This is the highest calling of the human heart, to love God. So let us see if we understand correctly from Scripture. <clears throat> the heart is evil, beyond our cleansing, the source of defilement. It leads into foolishly invites spiritual darkness. It's easily deceived and led astray, even at its best. It's an excellent deceiver itself that can be deceived by others and by me. And it's the most central part of me before God, the place God examines me. That heart is supposed to love God and love him not just with part of it, but with all of it. God, do you know what you're asking? My heart is so filthy, and what you've called my heart to is so very high. You'll have to tune in in five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, ladies. Let's take a quick break. Okay. You know what? Can we just let's pray uh, really quick again? Lord, we have come, and we come back now under your word. Would you just help us again to focus? And Lord, feel the weight of these words. And Lord, may we rejoice in you and your good work and your great plan for us, not because of us, because of your great love and because of your great mercy toward us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. <laughs> Question five. Does God see this predicament? Yeah, there's a lot of verses in this section. We're not going to look at all of them, so take time later to do that. We know that God does, right? Because he sees and knows everything. But we're going to look at some passages to help us. So these are phrases from some of the passages you have listed on your notes. From, so you don't, just whatever you want to do. Deuteronomy 8, 1 through 2. You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart whether you would keep his commandments or not. 1 Samuel 16, 7. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. 1 Kings 8, 38-39. Solomon has finished building the temple. He's praying for the people of Israel, appealing for God to answer their prayers. In verse 39, he says, Forgive and act and render to each one according to his ways, whose heart you know, for you alone know the hearts of men. God definitely does see the heart. He sees every heart. And he's the only one who knows every heart. So yes, God sees the predicament. He sees the discrepancy between the heart's condition, that wicked heart, and his command for us to 
to love him with all of our heart. Psalm 44, 21 says he knows the secrets of the heart. So let's turn to Proverbs 24, verse 11, and verse 12. I'm actually going to pick it up in verse 12. And God's the only one who sees this heart of ours rightly. Verse 12, he says, if you say, see, we didn't know this. That's deception because you did know. Does he not consider it who weighs the heart? God weighs the heart. And does he not know it who keeps your soul? And will you not render to every man according to his work? Not only is God weighing the heart, testing the heart of man, but he's weighing each one so as to repay, to to render to each one according to what he does or what he doesn't do. So yes, he sees the predicament, and he sees the purpose of it for repaying. In verse 17:10, I alluded to earlier, and we read verse 9. Verse 10 says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. God not only knows the heart and knows man's kind's predicament, but he searches each heart for the purpose of repayment, what the man deserves. Let's go to the New Testament, Mark 2, verse 6 and 8. I want to show you how Jesus displayed his deity with the same kind of knowledge of the heart. Mac, um, sorry, Mark 2, 6 through 8. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. So when you reason in your heart, you're not speaking out loud, right? And they go on. Why does this man speak that way? And it's in their hearts. He's blaspheming. He can, who can forgive but God alone? Immediately, Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Do you think their eyes were huge? The scribes were just thinking these words. And yet Jesus knew their heart, and he knew their thoughts. And he responded to them as if they had spoken their thoughts out loud. Jesus knows your heart, and Jesus knows my heart that way. And Jesus responded to them on the basis of what was in their heart. 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 5. Let's see what Paul says here. We're going to begin in verse 3. But to me it's a very small thing that I may be examined by you, or by any important fact. I don't examine myself. For I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore don't go passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts that then each man's praise will come to him from God. Paul is saying, I understand Scripture's analysis of the heart. The heart deceives. So even though I don't see anything wrong with my heart, doesn't mean I'm clean before the Lord, because I can't see my own heart accurately. But the Lord will come and disclose the motives of the heart. And we want this. We desperately need this. It's one of the reasons we are diligent and disciplined It is through God's word that he shows us what is in our heart. And in this we can root out what's evil, what displeases him, places we've been deceived. We participate in progressive sanctification, becoming like Christ. And this brings glory to God. And that's why God saved us, to bring him glory to himself. So does God see it? He sees it. In fact, he's the only one who truly sees the heart the way that it is. And he searches the heart for the purpose of repayment. And for one who does not know Jesus, this is a frightening reality. Question six. What is the greatest need of the human heart? Back to Deuteronomy 10. So we're going to approach this question from two different perspectives. We're going to go through first, and we're going to ask, what's the need, and who is responsible for meeting the greatest need of the heart? And part two, we'll come back through, and it's God's promises to do for man what he can't do for We're going back to the beginning of our Bible as we answer the question, doing our surveying of the heart. Deuteronomy 10, 12 through 16. Moses is talking to Israel here. 
Now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all of his ways and love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes, which I am commanding you today for good. And then verse 15, Yet on our fathers did the Lord set his affection to love them, and chose his descendants after them, even you above all peoples, as it is this day. Moses reminds the people of this beautiful relationship that the creator God of the universe has given them with himself. He has set his affections on them and requires them to love him, to walk in his ways, to serve him with all of their hearts. And then in verse 16 he says, So circumcise your hearts and stiffen your neck no longer. Their hearts needed circumcision. And they were commanded to do it for themselves. It's their responsibility to cut away what is evil, all that's keeping them from loving God rightly. You are the one responsible, sinner. Now go to Jeremiah 4, verses 4 and 14. This is nearly a thousand years later in the history of Israel, and God is still saying the same thing. Verse 4, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord, and remove the foreskins of your heart, men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. It's a command. Again, he's telling them, do it. Or else my wrath will go forth like will go forth and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. He's saying to Israel, there needs to be a radical removal like circumcision of all that's wrong in your heart, or judgment will come. It's a serious need, and I hold you responsible. Imagine that baby back in Delhi. The doctors had said, fix your heart, little one. Get that heart back in its right place. It's impossible, isn't it? Jeremiah 4.14 says, Wash your heart from evil, O Jerusalem. Why? That you may be saved. How long will your wicked thoughts lodge within you? It's already been a thousand years. Here he's commanding the very thing we saw in Proverbs 20, verse 9, that we can't do. Wash our hearts. That was back in question 2. And yet he's saying, you do something about your heart. You wash it. God has identified the greatest need. It's need of radical removal of all that's wrong. It needs to be cleansed. But he's placing that responsibility squarely on the shoulder of his people. Why does God do that? Why would he do that? Listen as I read Ezekiel 18, 30-32. Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, and keep according to his conduct, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn away from all your transgressions, so that iniquity may become may not become a stumbling block to you. Cast away from you all your transgressions, which you have committed, and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Here it is again. Make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. They have to be thinking, God, you want me to make the most important part of who I am before you, who I am at the very core, the part that bears all my thoughts and emotions and desires of words, the parts of me that you never overlook. You want me to do this? And the answer is yes. The command is Jesus. That'd be very uncomfortable to hear. And that was intentional. They needed to be uncomfortable with commands. But why? Because God was pointing to their need for a Savior. One who could purify their hearts. I'm going to read Joel 2, 12 through 13. Over and over again, God makes it clear that he holds his people responsible to do something about the heart need. Verse 12, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. This was the custom when something awful would happen, that they would tear the clothes. It was a sign of deep sadness and grief. And God is saying, you need to do that with your heart. He's saying to return to me with deep sadness for what you have made of yourself. Tear your heart. Show deep grief and sadness and brokenness. And we see the same idea in the New Testament. And so just that we understand that it's also a New Testament command at a certain level for a believer. It's a mixed condition command. We'll see that even in the New Testament, New Covenant, the command is the same. But we'll see that as a new creation, there is a huge difference in this command, right? We have ability now to purify hearts, to renew our minds. James 4, 8 Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. 
Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So we've seen the greatest need is to be cleansed and purified. All that's wrong, <coughs> cut away like circumcision, to be torn in grief, and man is responsible for doing it. So now that second part we talked about, having seen the greatest need is to have the heart cleansed, and that man's responsible, but also incapable of. Now we look at question six from another perspective. Part two of question six. What God promises do to do for man that he cannot do for his own part. Back to the beginning, Deuteronomy 30. Here is we, where we find the gospel of grace running all throughout scripture. Here is the hope. We will see that he is our only hope. We know that he is our only hope. So Deuteronomy 30, and it says verses 1 through 10. I'm going to look especially at verse 1 and 6 for a matter of time. So it shall be when all of these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind in all nations where the Lord your God has banished you. Skip down to verse 6. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, so that you may live. The old covenant anticipated that a new heart was desperately needed and that God would provide for it. From its earliest days, from the giving of the law, when God was setting up covenant through Moses, they were to long for a heart that was able to do everything God had said. God gave the command to circumcise your heart, and now he says, I will do it. So why did God give this command if he's the only one who could do it? He says, you, Israel, are responsible for the heart, and the burden is on you. However, I will do it. Why? Because he is a merciful, gracious God. He is kind. The command wasn't given because they could, but to highlight the responsibility to change it. The unbeliever that hears that, being led by the Spirit, cries out, I can't do that. How will I do that? And God says, I will do it. Turn to Jeremiah 31, 31 with me, backtracking through the same books, seeing that God is gracious in the very places where he seems making the need of the heart known. He's laying responsibility to meet it on his people. He's right there giving them hope, promising that he will provide for the most desperate need. This promise, uh, this passage promises a new covenant. 31 through 34. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord. Well, and I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within their hearts, within them and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. They will not teach again, each man his neighbor, and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. This is the promise of the new covenant with the house of Israel. They haven't experienced this as a nation yet, even today. They have a glorious day ahead of them when God fulfills the promises of the new covenant. You see Ezekiel 11, 19 through 21 listed on your outline. Ezekiel, like the Jeremiah 31, is looking forward to the new covenant. And you can look at that on your own. There's so much that I want to share. But when God gives people a new heart, his spirit within them will cause them to walk in his statutes. Do you see his kindness there? Do you see his love for us? Well, New Testament, Luke 22, verse 15. Let's go to the beginning of where that promise is being fulfilled. Here we find Jesus the night before the crucifixion. He's eating the Passover with his disciples. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. You can see that the cross is on his mind, right? It's where Jesus is focused. Verse 16, for I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup of given things, he 
he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now until the kingdom of God comes. He's making it clear that his death is imminent. And he goes on to verse 19 and 20. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup, which is poured out for you in the new covenant of my blood. Jesus is taking Passover supper, transforming it into what has become for us, a remembrance of his death. So let's turn to Acts. This is after Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension, and the blood of the new covenant has been shed. The Holy Spirit had come on the disciples, speaking in tongues, speaking great things of God. And people were speaking these great things of God in their own languages. They want explanation. So Peter picks up and gives his first sermon. This is what he says at the conclusion of the sermon in verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Christ whom you have crucified. He's Lord and he's Messiah, and those listening to him were the very ones who had crucified him. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said, Repent, each one of you, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all those who are far off, as many as the Lord will call to himself. Peter says, repent, be baptized. The promise is for you and for your children and for all that God will call. The new covenant in Jesus' blood had been inaugurated, and the Holy Spirit had been poured on, out on all who were present. And what happens at the heart level of those who hear Peter? They were pierced. They were wounded deeply. They experienced conviction at the level of the heart. The heart is changed by the preaching of the gospel. So we saw the greatest need of the heart is to be made new, to be cleansed, and that we are viewed by God as responsible. And again, why does God command sinners to do something with their heart that they can't do? It's because it puts the accent and the emphasis and the light upon our responsibility, on our guilt. I'm sorry. It puts the emphasis on our responsibility, on our guilt. And the way the heart changes is that he pleads his inability to change it. He's cut to the core, and he cries out to God through Christ and trusts in the work of the cross on his behalf. We're responsible for the unregenerate man. God does the work. He reveals the need for a Savior and gives understanding that we can't accomplish this. I can't change this. I can't wash myself. Now he trusts in God and Christ's finished work on the cross in the sinner's place. You know, a little... I just was able to share with my sister and heard this over the phone as the Lord was saving her. So we are responsible for what we have become, and we are responsible to do something about it. That doesn't hinder God's process of doing for the sinner what he cannot do for himself. Because it makes the one who is God is working in with his spirit say, I can't. Will you please do this for me? It makes us cry out to God. It makes us look away from ourselves. When we realize that our eyes have been opened by God to see how devastated our heart is and how deceived we are in the inner man. Now when our eyes are opened and to see that, God says, you're accountable. And we cry out, God, save me. I am done with myself at this point. Done playing religion. I'm done at church. I'm done with me. I no longer put my trust in myself. And we cry out for God's grace in the gospel to do what we cannot do for ourselves. Change me. At the heart level, I need a new heart. That's the gospel, and it's why Jesus shed his blood. To pay for all that we are responsible for. That we can't pay ourselves, which many will pay for eternity in hell. But he suffered in our place so that we, by his grace, could be made new at the inner man level. At the heart level, that is good news. What a great God we serve. He is a mighty, mighty Savior. In his word, he paints us. For us, a very, very dark picture of who we were. And then he brings light. And we need to walk ourselves through this over and over and over again. We need to take ourselves back on that journey and take each other on this journey. And remember that we were once in darkness.
and then step in to the light of the gospel and marvel again every day, all the time. Look who God has made me. Look what God has done. My great God and my great Savior, he has transformed my heart. He has transformed your heart. Now to question seven, our purpose at Wellspring. This is what we are about, and it's the last time through the Bible. Verse 7, what is God's provision for a heart that needs to change or has been changed? Let's see what God says. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. We want to treasure this. Let the words of this deepen in our hearts. Verse 4 says, if he has sinned and has realized his guilt... No, I'm a little bit sorry. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. So they would have been thrust up against this. How am I supposed to love God like this? Verse 60 says, These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. This is God's provision for our heart that has been changed by the gospel. His word, that we would have our hearts pushed up against his word continually, always. I love Ezra. Verse 10, uh, verse, yeah, in verse 10 it says, Ezra understood this. He was a scribe. And uh, Ezra understood that the heart and God's word were seen in full contact with one another. In verse 10 he says, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it, and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. Here's the Old Testament version of shepherding my heart. Ezra set his heart to study, to practice, and to teach God's word. That's what we're talking about in our discipline. Ezra knew his heart and needed to be in contact with God's word. So we have to stop and ask ourselves afresh this morning, do we understand that? Do we believe that? It's what God's word says. Do we understand how badly our hearts need God's word? I think we would all agree that we do, but it takes discipline. It's so easy to wander, right? Psalm 119.11 says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. With all of my heart I have sought you. This is the key to what it's all about. Our hearts need God and the provision he's given. It's always been that way. And notice what he says next. It's not just any kind of spiritual experience, right? There's a lot out in the world today. He says, don't let me wander from your commandments. Your commandments. Because my heart needs you, and you are revealed to me most through the commandments. Your word I have treasured in my heart, that I might not sin against you. The psalmist understood that the only way not to sin against the Lord who loves him is to treasure God's word in his heart. He has seen the word. It's his treasure. It's what he values. And he treasures it in his heart. There's nothing more precious to him. The psalmist is not describing a casual or occasional interaction, is he? You can see you have some verses from Proverbs listed there, too, that we're not going to turn to. But they are the pleas of a father exhorting his children to bring his words into full contact with their hearts. It's not just our our hearts that need to be fully engaged with God's word. It's our children's hearts, too, and our husbands and our parents, and everyone's heart, so that we might have the opportunity to care for Again, in Jeremiah 31, 33, God says he's going to put my law within them, and on their hearts I will write it. So God gets the commands, gets his word near your heart. And then he says, he's still going to be the one to do the work, right? Hmm. Hebrews 4, 12 through 13, tells us why. Why is God's word the provision for my heart? For the word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of the soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This is God's design for us with his word, that it would come near our hearts, and that we would allow him to use it as a surgical tool. Allow it to reveal the thoughts of our heart, the intentions going on. 
It's the only way we'll ever be able to discern what's going on in my heart. Remember, I'm deceived. I'm self-deceived. I need God's word. I need it to be there constantly and continually. And I need you to remind me, and I will remind you. We need to be realigning our hearts and minds. Oh, may our desire for that grow and grow and grow. What happens when maybe you don't read your Bible for a little while? Or you read your Bible but you forget or fail to engage with the Lord through his word? We should be terrified by that. We're not going to grow spiritually just by happenstance. We will drift far from him through that. God's word is his good provision for our hearts. What does our inner man need more than anything in this mixed condition? As women who have been born again, who have now been declared righteous in our mixed condition, we can be deceived. But what is different is that our new inner man has been given a capacity by God, for God, to know him and love him and pursue him and obey him. But he tells us to watch over our hearts. And we won't be done with that until we die or until Jesus comes back. So the point, our conclusion, is if we understand who we are in Christ, what he has made us into, if we understand the nature of our inner man, our heart, and be reminded, reminding ourselves daily, then we'll recognize that we need the word more than we need anything else in this world. We will treasure it, and we need to be bringing our hearts in full contact with it, always. And we need to do it prayerfully and worshipfully in a way that depends upon him to reveal himself through his provision, his word for us. God, we thank you for providing for us a way, providing for us something that we could not do in our own, understanding the wickedness of our hearts, and then bringing the gospel, bringing the good news of Christ, doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. It is your kindness that has led to repentance, and Lord, we daily need you. I do pray, Lord, that our affections would grow for you. Thank you that you have made a way for us to um, spend eternity with you. Thank you that you have given the provision of your word, that it would help us to discern the thoughts and motives. Lord, we know that you alone can do that, and we desire to sit at your feet. We desire to sit under your word and to be changed by you, that we might fully, more fully glorify your name and make much of you. God, I thank you for these dear sisters this morning here and uh, just giving us each a desire that your grace would be upon our hearts, that we might desire to be here early on a Saturday morning to learn more of you and to encourage one another. Let us be women who um, love you all out with everything that we have. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.